0: Hello members and people on the podcast. Welcome back to the Salem Witch Trials. We shall just jump straight in and continue. To the west of Salem Town and Beverly lay the large interior section known as Salem Farms. Here were the largest individual tracts of land granted by the town, as well as a few granted by the Bay Colony. In a society in which land equaled status and civic leaders, were drawn from the upper ranks. Salem and other Massachusetts towns granted the largest buildings to these pace-setters as a reaffirmation of their place in society, and to give them the means to devote more time to running the town's affairs. It should come as no surprise that the largest landholder in Salem Farms was John Endicott, the former governor of Norm Kierke, continued to lead the community after the arrival of Governor Winthrop, and would become governor of Massachusetts Bay in the 1650s, after John Winthrop's death in 1649. Endicott's neighbour to the south was Emmanuel Downing, Winthrop's brother-in-law. When he arrived in Salem in 1638, Downing purchased a 300-acre parcel, and soon was granted an adjoining 500 acres of upland and 80 of meadow. Other prominent citizens were given large tracts in Salem Farms, including William Hathorne, who would receive 200 acres in the western part of the farms. Around Hathorne Hill, west of Hathorne in present-day Middleton, lay 700 acres that the general court granted in 1638 to Richard Bellingham, a future governor. The colony often granted such large interior parcels to colony leaders, essentially to reimburse them for their time and expense in their otherwise unpaid service to the colony. The elite leadership of the colony developed large estates that mimicked those of England's gentry. Downing, is a good case in point. He named his 880-acre estate, Groton, after his wife's home in England, and he surely intended to live there as the lord of the manor. He even went to great expense to bring a duck koi that means decoy, with him from England, an elaborate series of nets and hoops employed on a pond to catch ducks, so that he and his guests would be provided with fresh game. Soon after his arrival in Massachusetts in 1638, the General Court granted Downing the right to establish a coin Salem, prohibiting anyone else from discharging a gun within a half-mile of the pond without Downing's permission. Downing promptly purchased another 50-acre parcel with two ponds, long known as the Coy Ponds in a present-day Marblehead. Not all the settlers of Salem Farms were granted such lofty holdings, and many of the vast tracts were soon divided or occupied by renters. Hathorne's growing civic responsibilities and merchant interests drew him to Salem Town. Although all his children, including John, the future judge, were born at Hathorne Hill, in 1647 he sold his lands in Salem Village to John Putnam, Danielia, and Richard Hutchinson, Governor. Richard Bellingham sold his 700 acres to Bray Wilkins and two other men in 1660. Two years later, when the General Court granted 300 adjoining acres to Major General Dennison, he immediately sold the tract to Wilkins. Emmanuel Downing returned to England in 1652 and leased his lands to a series of men, culminating with John Proctor in 1666. After the death of Governor Endicott and his son, some of the Endicott property was rented. Notably, in sixteen seventy eight, Francis and Rebecca Nurse entered into a twenty year rental agreement with an option to purchase a substantial tract to the west of the Endicott home farm and orchard. In the sixteen fifties and sixteen sixties, the underwent a transformation, with the basis of the community's economy shifting from farming. commerce. This would have a particular impact on Salem farms. Originally, lands here were granted to a wide range of individuals, including merchants, craftsmen, artisans, who practiced their trades and carried out subsistence and farming. In the 1650s, these men were increasingly drawn to the growing mercantile activity of Salem, Venezuela, and emerging urban waterfront core as William Hawthorne and others sold their lands in Salem, farms for smaller holdings on the Venezuela property in the farms was sold to men interested in commercial farming, crops that would feed the growing populations of Salem and Boston, or be shipped to other English colonies in North America or the Caribbean. Some men amassed substantial agricultural holdings. John Porter Sr., for example, became Salem's largest landowner, holding more than 1,500 acre by 1650. Much of this land was formed by Porter and his sons, though at least a dozen families were their tenants. Porter even owned a warehouse in Salem Town for his agricultural exports. While Porter concentrated his holdings, other grants were dispersed. 200 acres originally granted to the two prominent early settlers, Francis Weston and Elias Stilemen were sold and divided into smaller farms. By 1660, this parcel had been divided among ten families, forming the core of Salem Village. The growing specialisation of Salem Farms and Salem Village would lead to other problems. As the value of the land grew in the 1650s and 1660s, disputes arose over the boundaries between Salem and the adjoining towns of Topsfield and Lynn. Moreover, As civic leaders such as Hathorne and Endicott moved away from Salem Farms, they lost touch with their former neighbours, and the residents of the farms began to feel isolated and alienated from town politics. Their departure left a leadership vacuum, leading to the rise in prominence of Putnam family. In 1647, John Putnam Sr. purchased Hathorne Hill and received a grant from the town of a hundred acres. His three sons, Thomas, John Jr. and Nathaniel, would serve as select men, in which role they defended the interests of the small farmers and tenants of Salem farms. As Salem town grew, as a maritime commercial centre, virtually all residents prospered, yet the merchants accumulated far more wealth from their farming neighbours. After 1660, the merchants of Salem controlled a substantial amount of the town's wealth. Soon, this economic fact would be reflected in the political and social leadership of the community, leading to disquiet among the residents of Salem Farms. In one part of Salem Farms, this disquiet disquiet manifested itself in the widespread acceptance of Quakerism. The southernmost section of Salem Farms, the woods, was located along Lynn Line. Virtually all of Salem's Quakers were mariners, artisans, or owners of small farms who came from the woods, constituting the most substantial Quaker community in early Massachusetts. However, this was a colony where authorities dealt harshly with friends whom they viewed as apostates. And while it sort of reserved most severe penalties, whippings, and several times even death, were those Quakers who dared to portalize in Massachusetts. The Quaker residents of Salem had no easy time of it. By the mid-1660s there were 63 friends, 37 men and 26 women that is, in Salem, about nine percent of the adult population. The distance of Salem farms to Salem's core settlement and its meeting house along the harbour would soon lead to efforts by those the farms to separate from the mother town. Some homes were as far as seven miles away, making it extremely inconvenient for farms residents who had to go into town regularly to perform their civic duties and, most important, to worship on the Sabbath. Often when newer outlying settlements reached a critical mass population, they applied to their parent town and the general court to be granted a separate township Indeed, Wenham, 1643, Manchester, 1645, Marblehead, 1649, and Beverley, 1668, all won independence. Sometimes this could be a lengthy and continuous process, as turned out to be the case in Salem. It took 13 years for settlers of... Rentham to receive independence from Dedham, even though all residents of Rentham lived more than fifteen miles away from the Dedham Meeting House. Near the culmination of the struggle in sixteen seventy three, Rentham settlers accused Dedham of keeping them in the state of colonial dependency. Salem Town dragged its feet even longer than Dedham did, when Beverley attempted to split off. The initial step came in 1647, when the residents of Mackerel Cove on the east side of the Bass River successfully petitioned to be released from night watch duty. Due to their distance from Salem town, three years later it took three petitions from these men and their neighbours before Salem agreed to let them hire their own minister. In 1659 these residents petitioned to complete the separation process and become an independent town. But to no avail, seven years later, Salem finally allowed a quasi-independence by which the Mackerel Cove men could elect selectmen and other officers, but still acted in concert with Salem. In 1668, the split was formalised and the General Court incorporated Beverley as a town 21 years after the effort began, with the Mackerel Cove petition. Salem Village stated making noises for independence from Salem Town, just as Beverley's separation was being finalised. It appears that Beverley's independence was a tipping point, and Salem Town decided it allowed too much of its township to be carved off. While it was not uncommon for new towns to be petitioned out of old ones, this happened only nine times prior to 1670 in Massachusetts, with four of the nine cases involving a town being created by separation from Salem. Salem town was therefore not enthusiastic to see it happen again. Given Beverly's example, Salem village should have anticipated a prolonged struggle, but did not. The battle lines between Salem town and Salem Farms, Salem village region were quickly drawn, A 1666 petition from several residents of Salem Farms to hire their own minister fell on deaf ears at town meeting. The next year, the towns took issue with the men from Salem Farms being exempted from night watch duty due to their distance from town. Even after petition for this effect, from 31 Salem farmers received approval from the General Court. The issue came to head again in 1669, when Salem Town, raised a tax to build a new meeting house. Hmm. 28 residents of Salem Farms refused to pay unless the rest of the town agreed to contribute when the farmers built their own meeting house. Their concern was ignored by the church, and the next year the Salem Farmers petitioned the General Court for permission to build a meeting house and hire a minister. Because of the continued opposition from Salem Town, it took two years, but on October the 8th, Sixteen seventy-two, the General Court granted Salem Village the right to organize itself as a parish and hire its own minister. Finally, people would not have to make the long trek to the harbor for Sabbath. Yet it was only a partial victory; the village still remained a part of Salem. Furthermore, while the Salem Village Committee could collect taxes to build a meeting house and pay a minister, the General Court had not allowed them to form a church. In 17th century New England, everyone went to the meeting house to attend worship. A church was not a building, rather the term referred to a core group of congregants who were saints, that is, had been accepted into full church membership, with eligibility to receive the sacraments of communion and baptism for the children. Villagers who wished to receive their sacraments had to be accepted as church members in Salem Town, or in neighbouring towns. Salem Villages' parish status would help lead to the largest witchcraft outbreak in American history. Paul Boyer and Stephen Nissenbaum's 1974 book, Salem Possessed, The Social Origins of Witchcraft, remains one of the most important works written in the trials. In large part because of the pirating way it details how parish status combined with other factors to exacerbate tensions and give rise to factionalism. Lacking a formal town government and a church membership, Salem Village experienced power vacuum. The only elected body was the village committee, which oversaw the hiring and paying of a minister and the construction and upkeep of the meeting house. The committee would become a centre of dissension in the community, where... Factionalism became increasingly acrimonious. Surely no one in Salem Village foresaw such difficulties in December 1672, when the residents voted to spend 40 pounds bill meeting house on the acre of land donated by Joseph Hutchinson. The following spring, the village men raised the 34-by-28-foot building. The open and simple structure was typical of neighbouring meeting houses. It was two storeys tall with the second floor consisting of a balcony. As a gesture of communion, the Salem Town Church donated its old pulpit and bench for the deacons to sit on. All benches would have faced a pulpit, where the minister delivered the sermons and read from the Bible. The building initially lacked any glass windows, relying only on shutters to keep out animals and foul weather. There was neither fireplace nor chimney, so the meeting house would have been particularly cold during the winter, especially since Puritan services lasted much of the Sabbath. The seating pattern reflected social rank, with the wealthy and prominent at the front. Women sat on one side and men on the other. The balcony was reserved for children, servants and slaves. Clearly Salem Village's intermediate status was not only cause of the trials. No witch trials took place in Beverley or Rentham, nor in other towns that went through similar difficult foundational processes. Though Newton was a parish of Cambridge for more than 30 years before achieving independence, it appears never to have developed serious factions. Other towns and court are controversies over creating parishes and choosing a minister, as exemplified by the early career of Jeremiah Shepherd, a 1669 Harvard graduate, who was invited to Raleigh as a successor in his deceased brother Samuel in late 1672. Jeremiah was initially given a one-year contract, it would be renewed twice, but from the start, he was a polarising figure who had his detractors. Some worried that Rowley would not afford ten ministers. Samuel Phipps served as a teacher and assistant pastor. Some complained of Shepard's loose tongue, while others were not satisfied with his piety, nor spirit. Nor the company the young minister kept. When his contract was not renewed for a fourth year, Shepherd took his case to the entire town. Reverend Phipps, who by now opposed Shepherd, noted his evil speech, made before town meeting in February 1675. Phipps further observed that one church member hated Shepherd as much as that, if she had the opportunity, he doubted not that she would cut his throat. When his contract expired several months later, Shepherd refused to leave town or the pulpit. One Sunday morning, the two ministers had a nasty confrontation before the entire congregation over who was going to give the sermon. Shepherd or Phipps? Hmm. So here we see the arguments uh, arising, right? I mean... This is going to be cause for possibly calling people witches. Um, one simple argument, one something very simple, blows all out of proportion, and then you have neighbours fighting. Yeah, I can kind of see why we need to look at the history and understand the workings within the villages to see how it happened. When we come back, guys, we shall continue, obviously. Obviously. Um, And I will show you a replica of the Salem Village Meeting House um, in a picture so that you can see um, what it may have looked like back then. Thank you for listening and many blessings.